grab your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6, no doubt a passage that we are familiar with, but one that I think is crucial, particularly with what it is we talked about this morning with the Giants, um, that uh, if we are to engage in battle, and this is clearly a battle passage, uh, we must do so heavily armed. Ephesians 6, if you'll stand with me, reverence for God's word, we'll read verses 10 to 20. The Apostle Paul writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I ask uh, that you would, as always, open our hearts and minds and bodies and our entire being, that we would be transformed uh, by the gospel. Here it is we're looking at the sort of armor we should be carrying as we engage in spiritual battle. Let it be that we understand that we are engaging in a spiritual battle. And may we be found faithful in waging it. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son we pray. Amen. See you. I don't know if you've noticed this, but in times of war, every nation has their issues that go on the bottom shelf in favor of the pressing issue of war. For example, whenever World War II hit, America, or not when World War II hit, for the United States, when Pearl Harbor happened that brought us into the European War, um, America was still struggling and reaming from the Great Depression. Uh, we, we suffered under that for 12 years, 1929 to 1941, uh, whenever Pearl Harbor attacked us, um, or when Japan attacked us in Pearl Harbor. Um, but it's interesting. We went from the number one issue in America was an economic problem to all of a sudden, though that issue remained, Americans naturally understood we have a greater enemy we must engage. Imagine, if you will, if the response of America was the opposite. It was rather to say we understand that we are under attack and that we must uh, engage in fighting uh, this war on two fronts, Germany and Japan. And that is an important issue, but we really got to figure out one of these other cultural problems, political problems that we have. That would be odd because warfare always trumps all the other problems that a nation might have. But if you look at the church today, we've done precisely that odd thing. We are told, as we saw this morning, as we see in this text, that we have an enemy at which we are engaged at war with. But if you were to survey American Christianity, it, it, it would seem as if we are preoccupied with lesser problems, lesser battles. 
We seem to think our primary enemy is a political one, a policy one, an economic one, a justice one. When in reality, our primary enemy is a spiritual one. But we, for the most part, seem as if that has been put on the bottom shelf in favor of something else. That is odd to me. It is as if we are woefully unaware or perhaps woefully uninterested in who our real enemy is and, and engage in it. If we can deal with our spiritual enemy, these other issues, I believe, can, can be better understood and fought. Let's start here in Paul's uh, letter here by looking at the command, verses 10 through 12. You see, finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You need to note there what Paul does is, is two things. First thing he tells us in these verses is that we are engaged, whether we know it or not, whether we will fight it or not, in a spiritual war. In fact, it's really much larger than that. Uh, what Paul has been doing in Ephesians, and, and you've read through it this, this week, is he's been building up to this point. Paul identifies for us in the Ephesian letter who our real enemies are. If you will, we've done this before, go back to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, brief, we'll look at really one and a half verse, but two verses here. Ephesians 2, 2 to 3, right? So the great gospel passage, these 10 verses, you, you know, it's by grace you're saved through faith, all that sort of stuff. But notice there, uh, starting verse 2, in which you once walked, that is uh, the gospel, uh, or, or the sin, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body. In these two verses, which you have what Paul does for us, is he identifies for us our three primary enemies. We are at battle with these three enemies. First of all is the world. That is our external enemy, the enemy that is out there. Uh, John picks up on this in 1 John 2, for all that is in the world, lust of flesh, lust of the eyes, uh, pride of life, right? Boastful pride of life, uh, right? So that is from the world. Uh, many souls have been wooed away from the gospel in favor of worldly wise man, to use a John Bunyan Pilgrim's Progress term. Uh, in fact, we can look at it in the kingdom parables of the sower. You remember the, the one that lands among the thorns? What happens? It grows, but then it gets choked out by the cares of this world. This is why it is imperative for Christians to become aware of the empty trends and philosophies of the world and how the gospel is better. Um, I am starting to reach an age where I've, I've, got, I've been in the church pushing 40 years now to where I've seen every worldly trend the church went along with without ever the wisdom um, to see that this is yet another trend. Trends in music, trends in outreach, trends in church government, trends in preaching, trends, trends, trends. And we must be aware of the trends of this world from materialism to scientism to naturalism to instant gratification. And we must not fall for that. For the world is constantly trying to woo us away. Another enemy is the flesh. We have the world introduced here in Ephesians 2. The flesh, you see there in Ephesians 2 verse 3. If the world is our external enemy, the flesh is our internal enemy. 
uh, Jesus addresses this in Mark chapter 7. For within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride of foolishness. All of these things proceed from the inside. Jesus will say elsewhere, is that of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks? So, 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 so you, bad enough that you, you have pressure from the outside, you have weakness from the inside. And so it is as we are trying to uh, keep from being wooed from the world, we are, we are having to, to fight against the desires of the flesh. This is why it requires strength in order to, to wage war, not against those other people, but really against our own selves. And that leads, thirdly, we saw there in Ephesians uh, 2, 2, and we see it here in Ephesians 6. Uh, our third enemy we can call the devil. This is our spiritual enemy. Satan is indeed active in the world today. Though defeated, he still continues to rage. He is like a mortally wounded lion that is still dangerous. First uh, Peter 5, 5 describes as be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a rolling lion, seeking somewhere, some, some, someone to devour. Same thing is uh, Revelation 12. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, right? So, so, so you don't want to be here when this happens, right? Uh, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing his time is short. You understand then that what America needs is not for a change of parties. What your marriage needs is not for your partner to change. What we need is to realize that what our real enemies are, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And to ignore any of them is to surrender to them. We are fighting a war on three fronts. We had better be prepared for it. In fact, that's Paul's second point here in Ephesians 6, right? The first is who your enemy is. Your enemy is an external one, an internal one, a spiritual one. And Ephesians 6, he's primarily concerned with that spiritual one, although we can apply it to, to the others. And so he tells us of the principalities and the powers of the air and the heavenly places, all that sort of stuff. But you'll notice the second thing he wants us to do is because that is true, our response must be to be ready. On at least three occasions in these 10 verses, Paul exhorts us to be ready for battle. Verse 10, be strong. Verse 13, take up. Verse 18, keep alert. It's the same message. I don't know if you have a military background or not. Uh, I spent this afternoon, I went to Georgetown. Many of you all know I have a great uncle that is staying in a retirement home in, uh, uh, of Georgetown. He's the last of that generation, our family. We, we love him dearly. Uh, they were, uh, uh, Gano Baptist Church was doing a veterans thing with quilts. And so they honored him. Uh, he was in the Air Force for a number of years. It was really neat to go to. But, but if you're in the military, uh, you are called at all times to be ready. You are trained, from what I can understand, you, people who actually went to military, you can tell me uh, if, if this is true or not, that, that you have to have everything ready uh, at a moment's notice. If we are under attack, you need to be ready. My father was a fireman, volunteer fireman of uh, Oynton, and um, he would show us his, his uh, locker, although it's not really a locker. I don't, the, the, the word is, is, is escaping me here. But he had basically his boots with, and, 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 and his, his gear in such a way that he can put his feet into the boots, pull everything up, and within five seconds, he's ready to go. Grab the helmet and you can just go. Right? Why? Why? Because if there's a fire, uh, you, you got to be ready for it. You got to be ready to rescue. So Paul is saying that we must be ready for warfare. Um, and so 
um, um, spiritual warfare never comes, we should note, in a time of convenience. It is unlikely any of us wake up in the morning anticipating a day-long or week-long struggle with depression, for example. Or we wake up hoping today will be a good day that I will fall uh, a victim of believing lies. Or maybe today I will finally get to choose bitterness. Or maybe I will uh, get to engage in gossip or commit uh, some, some uh, sexual sin, right? We don't usually wake up like that. And yet, when we least expect it, when it is inconvenient to say, that is exactly what happens. And yet, it happens because, as the Bible tells us, we are at uh, war. James 1.14 tells us this. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. I love the ESV translation there because lured is a fishing term. The Greek term here is a fishing term. It is a bait on a hook, right? Uh, you, you, you get how fishing works. Um, and, and so it is. Temptation is like a fish who sees a worm, a cricket, whatever it might be. He sees it and they say to himself, self, I want a cricket today. I want a worm today. Look at it. It is wiggling, waiting to be eaten. What it doesn't anticipate is the hook. So too, when we are led astray by our desires, we are biting into hook, thinking we are getting food. So that is the command here in verses 10 to 12, that we are called to stand ready because we are at war. The second thing he tells us, uh, it shows us, is the covering, the command and the covering. Well, having charged us to be ready for war, he now prepares us for battle. And what, what Paul does here is he, you ever see like these war movies, right? Lord of the Rings or something like that, where uh, as, as the scene is building up to the big climactic battle, you know it's going down, right? What, what the director likes to do, particularly Peter Jackson, is he likes to have his uh, arming scene, right? So you get a, you get a line of, of, of soldiers grabbing their weapons, put it on their mail armor, their helmets, all that sort of stuff. That's basically what it is Paul's doing here. He's like, okay, here it is. I'm about to send you out in war. So, so here's the scene where we're going to put on our breastplate and our helmet and our, our shoes and whatnot. That's basically what it is Paul is doing here. Um, and what he shows us is what does a ready Christian look like? To go back to my father in, 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 being a fireman, if, 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 he, if his gear was a suit and a tie and a pocket protector, that's not going to be very practical in a grass fire. I'm guessing. I'm no expert, right? But I did, I do have access to the internet, right? And I did stay at a Holiday Inn. There's a story behind it. The youth had never seen that commercial, right? Anyway, so, uh, but, uh, so, so then what is our gear? What is our armor? The first is the belt of truth. The belt of truth. Now, I want you to do me a favor as we go through these. Pay more uh, pay closer attention, not to the armor, but what the armor represents. So here you have a belt and that is good, but I want you to pay more attention. It is not to the gear, but, but to, the, to, to the principle. Pay attention to the truth. Why is it do we need to be girded with truth? It's because of spiritual warfare, we tend to believe lies. And oftentimes lies are fed to us at our at our area of vulnerability. If, if, if we start to convince ourselves of X, even if X is, is, is a lie and not true or a half-truth that can be manipulated, that is the area where we need the truth the most. 
It's amazing how we can easily be manipulated into bad things because in an area of vulnerability, we have chosen to believe lies. Rather, we need to be girded with the truth. Jesus warns us that lies are demonic. Uh, John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil. That's how you win friends. And you want to do the desires of your father. This is a great way to grow a church, by the way. He was a murderer from the beginning. So we could apply this to violence, by the way. Violence is demonic. Remember that, Christians, next time you grab your torch and pitchforks in the name of Jesus, okay? That will probably get me in trouble. And, and, and notice here, he's a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth. There's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. He is a liar. He is the father of lies. Now, notice what it is you have here. When it comes to spiritual warfare, what we want is the exorcism. What we want is haunted dolls in the basement, or whatever weird thing we get from Hollywood, right? But what the Bible usually presents to demonic is ordinary stuff. We naturally want to believe lies. And the answer to those lies in those vulnerable areas is to ground ourselves or to gird ourselves in truth. Spiritual war comes when we start to believe lies and we are unable to separate the truth from the lie. No doubt we've had days when we've heard voices of accusation and lies that berate us to the point we want to believe them. I am a failure. I am broken. I am terrible. I'm a bad mother. I'm a distant father. I am this. I will always be this. I've always been this. What so-and-so said when I was a child, that experience I had, this must be who I am. But if God is truth, then his word and his promises are truth. Not abstractly, but personally. What has God in Christ said about us? One of the great exercises I like to do, we actually did this at youth camp this, this past year, is, is, is uh, we did something like it, is whenever I see someone believing lies and they go down this spiral, uh, is, as I like for them to grab a piece of paper, write down every lie, right? I'm this, I'm that, da 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 And then, I, then I'll take them, usually Ephesians 1, and I say, I want you to write down everything true that, that God says about you and I in Christ. And then, and then with, with the two, they're very opposite, Right? Um, and then to say, today you must choose which is true and which will you believe. There is liberation in that. I'm being told to believe this, but the gospel says to believe this. One is freedom, one is slavery. Gird yourself with truth. Secondly, we get the breastplate of righteousness there in verse 14. Righteousness. Here is both the declaration of righteousness and growth in righteousness. We don't have time to go into the theological uh, minutia, but both are true. You and I as Christians, when we come to Christ by faith, we are declared righteous. That is essentially the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That though guilty, we are declared righteous, justified on account of the finished work of Christ. And so he is both our judge and he is both our savior here. And so being declared righteous, we, with the gift of the Spirit, we become righteous. And that is the journey of the Christian faith. And Paul says here that we must, we must have the breastplate, breastplate of righteousness. Why? Because moral failure happens when we are unarmed. When we forsake or forget the gospel or when we let our guard down. 
To not be properly armed leads us down a dangerous path. Can I give you just, just a few examples of this? Maybe some areas that maybe we haven't thought about, maybe some that we have. Let's look at one. What is one area that where we let our guard down? Maybe think this is a safe place, not that big of a deal. How about something like gossip? We love gossip. It's why the internet was invented, I think. Paul writes this in 1 Timothy 5. At the same time, they, the, the, these are the young widows, also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention. Now, if we ended there, we were like, yeah, that's a problem. I can tell you as, as a pastor, that's a problem. You can tell me just as a family member, that's a problem. As a co-worker, that's a problem, right? This is how you ruin reputation, how you ruin lives, how you bring other people down, all in the name of self-righteousness, right? It is a huge problem being a busybody and a gossip. But notice what he does there. I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some, it gets cut off there, for some have already turned aside to follow Satan. Did you notice that? Paul equates gossip with the demonic. Spiritual warfare. And how easy is it for us to say, well, you know, I heard something and I needed to share it with somebody. No, you need to understand you're engaging in spiritual warfare. This isn't heads turning on someone's shoulder speaking in Latin backwards. This is texting. This is direct messaging. This is lunch after church. And it ruins people. But what happens when we engage in that is we're no longer armed with the righteousness of Christ. Not that we've, we've lost our justification, but we have failed to be armed with righteousness. Let me give you another example here, and that is bitterness. What does Paul write in Ephesians 4? Be angry, yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. And we always apply that to marriage, right? But notice this. Do not give the devil an opportunity. Did you see that? The idea is a foothold. If you're trying to climb a mountain and you're trying to conquer something, you need, you need that foothold just enough to get to the next step. And, and, and anger left unaddressed will corrode into bitterness that will consume you. The most miserable people you will meet in this life are people who never address the demonic sin of anger. They're just bitter people. Malice, animosity, anger. It's awful. They push everybody away because they refuse to forgive. They refuse to reconcile. They refuse to address the root issue that's driving their bitterness. And it is demonic. It has ruined countless churches. Countless churches. And what happens is we choose bitterness rather than righteousness. Let me give one more sexual sin. This is sort of obvious one I would think. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Come together again. Why? So that Satan will not tempt you. Did you notice what he said there? If a couple are not together, ruin your prayer life. Ruin your marriage. It'll ruin your righteousness. Imagine that. And we all know it's true. What happens is We think we're safe here. It's not that big of a deal. And that is where the enemy steps in. But when we are covered with Christ's righteousness, we dare not surrender to unrighteousness. This is why we must engage in war against the flesh. And can I remind you that the letter of the Ephesians was not written to an individual named Ephesus. 
It was written to a church in a city called Ephesus. First Baptist Church of Ephesus, if it helps. He's calling on the church to say that if you want to grow in righteousness, you cannot and will not do it alone. Have you ever seen a soldier try to address himself? He can't hardly do it, can he? Ever see a football player try to dress himself? Can't hardly do it, can he? Neither can you. Let's move on. Third is the gospel of peace, there in verse 15. And here we must choose between Christ or chaos. The main narrative of the Bible from creation to consummation is how God arrested peace out of chaos, light out of darkness. This is why there are some wild images in the, ba- in the Bible. Can I give you two that are prominent in the Old Testament that show up in the New Testament? One we looked at this morning, giants. <laughs> what do you do with that, right? <laughs> you know, that's why we usually don't read those parts of the Bible because we're Americans and that's just weird. That's some wild imagery there. And how is it that God arrests control from from such chaos? Or consider what it is the Bible says about dragons and Leviathan and all that sort of stuff. All of that is is to show us how God takes the chaotic, God takes the wild, and he brings out of that peace. And so we must choose as individuals, as a church, as a society, between Christ and chaos. When the gospel invades, it brings with it peace. Several weeks ago, I think when we were in the Gospel of John, or, or maybe it was a different passage, I don't remember, we talked quite a bit about, oh, it was Romans 5.1, I could tell you exactly, it was just a few weeks ago. We talked about peace and the, and the biblical theology of shalom. The Bible speaks of peace not as the absence of violence or conflict, but it's much bigger than that. Is as we have peace, shalom. The gospel brings with it peace. When we forsake the gospel, when we forget the gospel, when we ignore the gospel, chaos will inevitably come our way. You've heard me say this before. Most of the counseling opportunities I have, in the back of my mind, I think I could fix this like that. Fix it like this. All you got to do is choose Christ over your chaos. You want to know why you're fighting with your spouse? You're fighting with your spouse, right? Maybe we should start with something like that. Screaming, shouting, uh, bitter, all this sort of stuff. Most of our problems could be easily resolved if we choose the gospel. When the gospel is chosen, we choose peace. When we choose something else, we choose chaos. And so our feet are shod with the gospel. Fourthly, is, there are six of these. There is the shield of faith. Technically, there's seven. We'll get to that in a minute. The shield of faith, verse 16. At the end of the day, our enemies desire a full surrender of our faith. Is, is, is that too elementary? Is something that we, we forget? At the end of the day, what the enemy wants is for us to forsake our faith. And over the last 200 years, he's been quite successful in the United States of America. I mean, look what he did with COVID and how easy that was. Take a few weeks off. Tell people to go inside and watch it on TV. It's amazing how, how fickle our faith turned into. Or replace that faith with politics. It's amazing how fickle our faith proved to be. Look, Satan doesn't care about your politics. He cares about your faith. The world doesn't care about your family. It cares about your faith. The flesh doesn't care about your good deeds. It cares about your faith. In his book, Screwtape Letters, which I recommend to you, um, Mere screw tape is a series of letters written by a senior demon to a junior demon. So when I read enemy, that's Jesus. But I am not saying Jesus is our enemy, right? It's the enemy of the demon, okay? You'd be amazed how people get that confused. Uh, this is from chapter 7. 
I had not forgotten my promise to consider whether we should make the patient an extreme patriot or an extreme pacifist, as written during World War II. All extremes, except extreme devotion to the enemy, that is Christ, are to be encouraged. Some ages are lukewarm and complacent, and then it is our business to soothe them yet farther asleep. Other ages are unbalanced and prone to faction, and it is our business to inflame them. We want the church to be small, not only that fewer men may know the enemy, but also that those who do may acquire the uneasy intensity and the defensive self-righteousness of a secret society or of a clique. Whichever he adopts, patriotism on the one hand, pacifism on the other, your main task will be the same. Let him begin by treating it as a part of his religion. Then let him, under the influence of partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important parts. Then quietly and gradually nurse him onto the stage at which the religion merely becomes part of the cause, in which Christianity is valued chiefly because of the excellent arguments it can produce in favor of either British war effort or pacifism. Once you have made the world an end and faith the means, you have almost won your man. It makes little difference what kind of worldly end he is pursuing. Right? You should notice what he said there. If you can merge religion and the issue, here it's between patriotism and pacifism. And you, and you can say that if your goal is to win the war, if your goal is peace, if your goal is to win the election, if your goal is to pass tax policy, if your goal is a robust economy, if your goal is to ban this or that, if that's your end and you allow religion to become the means, you've already lost the faith. That's Lewis's point. And, and I can tell you that is a major, perhaps the biggest problem within American evangelicalism. We've allowed the gospel to be hijacked for other ends. The ends is the glory of God, not the triumph of a party, of a nation, of a certain view. This is a major, major problem we have. And to address it in many American churches will get you in a lot of trouble. Well, let's move on. Fifthly, the helmet of salvation. Verse 17, one of the greatest weapons of Satan is that of accusation. In fact, this is one of his key weapons, I believe. Revelation 12, 10, uh, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation of power and the kingdom of God and authority of his Christ have come for the accuser. This could be a capital A. Because that's a name. The name Satan is, is not really a proper noun, uh, particularly in, in the Hebrew. Uh, it's, it's, you could call him the Satan because the word means accuser. So when the accuser comes, um, and so that word is used in a variety of ways in the Old and New Testament, even beyond the, the, the demonic. Let me give you another example here. Zechariah 3, one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. We've looked at it in the past before. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel Lord. Joshua represents Israel as the high priest as the day of atonement. He's standing in their place as their mediator and interceder. And there is the Satan, the accuser, standing at his right hand to accuse. That's what the accuser does. Do you remember how the rest of this passage goes? Jesus, who I believe is the angel of the Lord here, he gives the order, 
to remove from Joshua the high priest the clothes of filth and put on him new clothes and a, and, and a new, and a, and a new uh, turban. And he declares him clean. Not on account of what Joshua is or what Joshua did because of grace. It's a beautiful, beautiful passage. But this is what it is that we are to expect. Without the helmet of salvation, you will fall prey to the lies of accusation. You will fall prey to to, to the lies of accusation. I think Luther was asked something like, how do I know, how can I tell the difference between conviction of sin, which is the voice of God, and accusation from the devil? And Luther said something, and this, I get this from Alistair Begg, um, said something like, when my God speaks to me is with sweet reasonableness. That's true. Because Luther understood we cannot forget the gospel. You can go to Warburg Castle in, 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 uh, in Germany, where Luther translated the Bible into German, which was a capital crime. And there's an ink block um, uh, on the wall um, to this day from 500 years later because he threw the ink block at the devil <laughs> because Luther went through a period of real depression. He was, he was alone in Warburg Castle because uh, the king had ordered his execution. So his elector uh, 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 kidnapped him uh, and hid him away so that no one could kill him. So he went through this period of depression and spiritual warfare. And at one point, he, he picks up the ink block and just throws it at the wall. Luther understood coming out of that. He said, I had to choose salvation over accusation. Well, sixthly, the sword of the Spirit, verse 17. In many ways, this final piece of of armory underlies the rest. We have Satan's battle plans because they have been revealed to us in the Word of God. Not only that, we are armed with a singular weapon, God's Word. Not human wisdom, not, not, not politics, not policy. The gospel of Jesus Christ is revealed in the Word of God. It is the foundation of truth. It is the revealer of righteousness. It is the assurance of peace. It is the confidence in our faith. It is the guarantee of salvation. It is a revelation of Christ. Usually when people surrender in spiritual warfare, it is because of, of, of they are not drowning in the word of God. It is the number one indicator of who will uh, be in the church long term is reading the Bible. It's really not more complicated than that. A Christian who knows little of the Bible knows little of Christ. And to know little of Christ is to be weak in the battle. Why would we ever go to war without a weapon? Why would we think we can engage in spiritual warfare without Scripture? Well, that's the covering. You're tired. Let's quickly look at the charge. Verses 18 to 20. It is accurate to state that there are six pieces of army for the Christian, our spiritual war. But Paul actually puts a seventh one here. Notice what he does, uh, verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with perseverance. Do you see that seventh weapon, the seventh piece of armor? It's prayer. It's amazing how many people read this passage and, and they miss this part out. For three verses, Paul exhorts his readers to pray and then to pray some more. First of all, pray for others, right? Verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit, right? Pray with supplication. Uh, that's intercession. Pray pray for others. Remember again, Paul is praying. Uh, Paul is writing to a church, not to an individual. This is why what we do on Mondays is, is so critical to the ministry of this church. We should pray with perseverance. We should pray with supplication. Not just that. Notice verse 19. He asked for personal prayer. 
Verse 19, and also for me, the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare boldly as I ought to speak. Ephesians is one of several uh, 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 prison epistles. Philippians is one. Colossians is one. Philemon is another. To Timothy is another, right? Where Paul writes these letters from prison. And here he's saying that you must be armed. And here it is, is pray for one another. And he asks, pray specifically for me because I am in the depth of spiritual warfare. I know that if I surrendered to the preaching of the gospel, I would be free. And that is a strong temptation for me. Pray for me that I would be strong. And not just that I would be strong, but I would be given strength. Paul wants to be bold, not safe. So he charges the church that, 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 that what will undergird a lot of this is prayer. Prayer. Lord, strengthen me today. Lord, make me alert today. Give me, uh, help me to grow in righteousness today. Let me have the peace of the gospel today. Let, him, let me be crowned with salvation today. For today is another day by which the enemy seeks to devour me. Pray. Lord, I want to lift up my loved one who sits on the other end of the church that I know by name, that who are having real needs. Lord, I lift up so-and-so who I know right now is a real vulnerable moment as they begin this new journey in their life. Pray, 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 and then pray some more. We can never win this war apart from prayer. Well, let us end with a song, shall we? I mentioned Luther earlier. I'm not going to sing it. Um, I mentioned earlier Luther. He was reading through the Psalms, and he came across one. I think it's in the 30s. It's, it's, I didn't write it down, which is my mistake. And his most famous hymn, it's in your hymn book if you're interested. I don't know what, what hymn it is. But I'm sure you know it well. Somebody fortresses our God is a hymn about spiritual warfare. And though this world with devil's field should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. Sounds like a giant, doesn't it? His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure one little word shall fell him that word above all earthly powers no thanks to them abide the spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sighed let goods and kindreds go this mortal life also the body they may kill god's truth abides still his kingdom is forever. Well, let us go to the Lord in prayer.